You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Father, we are built upon the rock, which is your son, uh, the chief cornerstone. Um, And so we come, just as Ethan encouraged us to to worship him by your spirit and for your glory, Father. I pray as we approach the scripture the truth of your word, that it would feed us, that it would uh, encourage us, that it would challenge us, whatever is necessary, whatever by your spirit we need this morning, I pray that you would do that. I just pray for help um, for in my brokenness and in my weariness and in my blind spots that you would still work despite me, uh, that, that your voice would speak and that Christ would be glorified and that the word would go forth in a mighty way uh, so that Jesus is exalted and honored. Uh, That's our prayer, and it's in his name and for his glory, I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Just one more quick announcement. Uh, I told Talavo I would uh, give him another plug, just because I really believe what they're doing is good, and uh, I want to encourage you guys. High schoolers, uh, they have extended the camp uh, early bird discount for till May 3rd, which is the last gathering. And if you're a parent of a high schooler or a rising high schooler, if you're an eighth grader going into ninth, or if you're a high schooler, let me just encourage you, you need to, if you can, you need to be at this camp. And, and don't let money be an issue because we'll help you. Now, it's going to be the best camp they do yet, first of all, besides the fact that they're going to a Braves game, which, by the way, is the biggest waste of money ever, but that's another story. <laughs> okay. Um, so. Just, just saying. Uh, uh, but they're going to do some great fun things. Gonna get, they are going to go to a game. They're going to go whitewater rafting. But on top of that, they're just going to be encouraged and built in. And, and if, if your high schooler does not know any high schoolers, then this is the way to do it. This will kind of launch them into the fall for their weekly meetings. And it'll be much easier to plug into those fall meetings when you go to a camp and hang out and you're just having a lot of fun together and being encouraged together and singing together. Uh, for a week. And so um, the early bird discount is over May 3rd. May 3rd. Um, if you have questions about it, talk to Talavo, grab Payne. Uh, they're doing a phenomenal job. Their leaders are doing a great job. That ministry is growing on Wednesday nights. And so just, just want you to know that it is a good thing. And, and um, they're going to have a big, big time when they go up there. Um, turn to Luke 9 if you have a Bible. Luke chapter 9. We're still in the cha- It's like we've been in like Luke 9 forever. Um, uh, but we're going to be here for a couple another, another couple of weeks. It's a long chapter. Um, I was talking to a gentleman this week and uh, just was in his church and looking up and he was explaining to me, you know, just some of the things about the church. Um, 
and, and this is a good church in town. And you can tell this, this, this boy has been a member of this church for a long time. I mean, him and like Paul were brothers. You know, that's how long he's been at this church. And he's telling me about the past. He said, yeah, man, back in the day, you know, 50 years ago, we had three, 3,000, 3,500 people on a Sunday. And I was thinking, man, that's, that's pretty impressive in the four of the days of the mega church, that this church was just, was just packed. Not that numbers tell everything. That's one metric of many. Um, I mean, you could go by, oh, last week we had, we had last week about a thousand people that don't normally come to church were at our church last Sunday. Now, evangelical numbers are like, yeah, we got this many people. So we just start telling everybody, that's not how many people we have. But that's, but that's sometimes the push. We have this many people. But it just, it started getting me asking questions. I mean, this was a church that 50, 60 years ago had this many people in there, a tenth of that now. And so I'm just asking questions. What, how does it that a church starts to die? I mean, what is it, where does it happen? What are the things that take place? What is that process? There's always an ebb and flow in church growth. I get that. But I mean, how does a church go from a bunch of people excited about God and, and, and worshiping and lives are being changed and there's just, there's just this energy and the spirit is clearly moving? How does it go from that to just not that anymore? So I pulled out the old moleskin. When I pull out the moleskin, it's serious. All right, I got another little journal thing. That's kind of like the lesser serious. The moleskin now, this is like, this is like hidden. No one sees this, right? Secret plans for the church. Um, but I pull it out and I just start writing just things and I'm looking in the scripture and saying, okay, here's, here's something. I came up with like 14 things that, that are right out of scripture that, okay, this, a church dies when this happens, when this is taking place. And as I'm preparing for this week's sermon, I'm kind of like, what am I gonna do with this passage? The transfiguration, Give me, what in the world am I gonna do it? And, and it struck me that there is some, some great truths in this narrative we're going to look at today that just show us what is a, how do, how do we stay alive? Because I don't want to be here in 35 years and it's just my family and the McGinnies. Not that I don't love them. And we're like, talk, yeah, it's all 16 of us now. And we're thinking, look out, remember the old days? You know, remember the good old days? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a part of a dead church. You want, any, raise your hand if you want to be part of a dead church. Someone that wasn't listening, raise their hand. Oh, everyone, you know, raise my hand. Okay, good. Get that person. No, just kidding. No, none of us do, right? And so we're going to look at some things. And, and fortunately, as I study this text, three of the things on my list for my little moleskin pop up. I'm like, whew, okay, I'm in a good place. But I think these three are key. If we're going to be 30 years from now, 40 years from now, a church that's still getting it, that God is still being glorified, that people's lives are still being changed, that the gospel is still being preached, that the spirit is still moving through us, I think these things are essential. So we're going to look at Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, 23 through 36. And we're going to look at three things this morning, three simple things. And I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to start at the backside of our text and kind of deal with that and then come back and catch the front side. And the reason why is because I think that the backside is the most important piece. And if we can grasp what that passage teaches, then I think the first two are just natural flows out of that. All right? So let me read just our first. Remember last week what happened is Jesus basically affirmed what type of Messiah he was. He was a Messiah who would be rejected, who would suffer, who would die, and who would be resurrected to meet our greatest need. Right? And right after that discussion, he jumps into verse 27. All right, so let me read it. 
And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And we'll come back to that at the end. And the next thing he says is this. Very interesting, verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some here, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, you gotta understand, the kingdom of God is what every Old Testament Jew has been waiting for. For a long time, this hope and expectation that finally Messiah would come and come and he would institute the kingdom of God. I mean, it was like last year, Cubs fans. Last, it's been 108 years for Cubs fans since they won the World Series. The curse of the goat was on. And finally, in November of last year, the curse is broken. And I read articles, even this week, just, just laughing. There's 92-year-old grandparents thinking, I thought I would never see the Cubs win the World Series. And they're crying and everything and giving money away. Like it's, but, but that kind of expectation and longing, is it going to happen? When, when the disciples hear, some of you are not going to die until you see it. You, you're going to get a little bit of a piece of it. right? That it that, there's excitement. Right? And, and there's all sorts of, you can read the commentaries now. You read about this verse and there's like seven or eight different interpretations of what does it mean that they're not going to see, they're going to see the kingdom of God. And I'm reading them and I don't understand what they're saying. So I'm like, that can't be right because I don't even understand what that is. And it seems to me, I know I'm a PE major, but the simplest explanation is the best. Whenever you come to the Bible, the, usually the most obvious is, answer is the answer. And it seems to me when Jesus says you're not going to die until you see the kingdom. It, what he's talking about is exactly what happens next and what we call the transfiguration. So let's see what happens. He says, now about eight days, after eight days, the, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. Those are the inner circle. Those are kind of his closest buddies. They're the leaders among leaders. And they went up on the mountain to pray. Very typical for Jesus and his inner circle. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Literally, the Greek says, flashing like lightning. And in, in Mark's account and Matthew's account talk about how his clothes are so white that no, no launderer in, in, on earth could get him that white. No tide with bleach. Okay, that he is just shining. He is, he is just so bright you cannot look at him. His face looks different. It's like lightning flashing in front of you. Right, that's, that's what's going on. And what are the apostles doing at this point? They are asleep, which is actually kind of funny and encouraging because they're supposed to be praying and they're sleeping. How many of that... How many of us is like that? And then Peter is about to put his foot in his mouth again, all right? So it, he's about to do have one of those moments where it's like two ladies walking down. Oh, you didn't introduce you, me to your mother. That's what Peter's about, my mother. And you know, one of those statements where you're like, shouldn't have said that, right? That's what Peter's about to do. 
So he's sleeping when he's supposed to be praying. He's putting his foot in his mouth when he's supposed to be quiet. It's just like us, but God still is revealing this to himself. So they're sleeping. And what's going on here is that the, the, the curtain is being pulled back and they're getting to see Jesus for who he really is. They're getting to see the Jesus of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 21. They're getting to see the Jesus that that Moses has to hide in the rock and God covers his eyes and he kind of lets it go by and, and he just sees his afterglow. He's getting to see the glorified Christ. So they wake up. And not not just them, by the way. There's two men talking with them, Moses and Elijah. How do we know it's Moses and Elijah? We don't know. They didn't have name tags. My only assumption is that in heaven, everyone just knows who everyone is. But, But Moses and Elijah are there in glory. And look what they're talking about. They're talking about his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Two of these great prophets in heaven, these famous guys from the Old Testament, are talking with the glorified Christ. And what are they talking about? The cross. They're talking about the cross. The people of heaven were talking about the cross. When we go to heaven, Revelation teaches that we're gonna be singing about worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's the central point of history, the cross and the resurrection. And so they're talking with him about what he's gonna accomplish. And and meanwhile, there's Peter and James and John just kind of rolling over and snoring and they're missing this unbelievable thing. And finally they come to. Peter and those with him heavy with sleep, they, they became fully awake. And you can imagine they're groggy, you know, you just woke up this morning and you're like, oh, wiping the junk out of your eye and your hair's all over the place. And, and it's so bright. You think about it when it's already when you wake up and you can hardly, you know, just kind of, but it's, there's bright that's like so bright. It's like blinding. It's like driving east at eight o'clock in the morning on one of our roads in town. You know, you're like, I can't see anything. Is that a red light? Is that a green light? It's 10 times that. And, and it says in Mark's gospel that they are terrified They're in shock at seeing Jesus just like this. And so the two, Elijah and Moses, start to leave. And Peter says to Jesus, Master, this is when he should have been quiet. He's like, oh, they're leaving. Uh, uh, What do I do? What do I do? Master, it's good that we are here. He's like, this is great, right? This, This is a great place. Let us make three tents one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's like, let's, let's hang out here. Let's get some tents. Let's get some enos. Let's get some campfire going. Let's just be here for a long time. And you say, why does Peter all of a sudden have this affinity for camping? I notice it says at the end, he's not knowing what he's saying. Okay, this is Peter, foot in the mouth Peter. But he doesn't know what he's saying. But why have all of a sudden is he such a big camping aficionado? Because Peter knows his Old Testament. Okay, and the Old Testament has these these seven feasts of Israel. Okay, is the Israelites had seven feasts. They had some fall feasts and they had some spring feasts. And the seventh feast was called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And the prophets said that in the kingdom, Israel would celebrate the Feast of Booths with the Messiah. So what Peter is seeing is here's here's the Messiah, here's him glorified. This must be it. Here's the kingdom. It's time to celebrate. Bring out the enus. Bring out the booths. 
And literally, it just meant that God would tabernacle with them. Every one of, of the feasts of Israel points to an aspect of what Jesus has fulfilled. Passover, Passover lamb. Unleavened bread, the removal of sin. First fruits, the resurrection. Pentecost, the church. Feast of trumpets, which is the next in the prophetic, the, the rapturing of the church. The day of atonement, the return of Jesus so that the nation of Israel finally returns to its master. And then the final the final one is the Feast of Booths. It pictures the kingdom. So he thinks, we're in the kingdom. Isn't this great? Forget the other guys. Leave them down at the bottom of the mountain. We'll hang out with you. And as he is saying this, not knowing what he's saying, as he's saying this, what is he? He forgets some things, right? He forgets Jesus said rejected, suffer, cross, resurrection. And it's as he, I love that, it's as he was saying, it's not after he said it. It's like the father knows that Peter is putting his foot in his mouth and this cloud came and enveloped, it overshadows them. It's the same word that you see of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. And they were afraid, yeah, as they entered the cloud. And then, now they can't see anything they can't see two feet in front of their face. It's a picture of the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament temple of when, when Solomon has a temple and just the smoke comes down. And on top of that, a voice comes out. Now the Father is going to audibly speak. Now, I want you to think about this. This is God the Father from heaven. This is not like, okay, an impression on my heart. I'm reading the scripture and I feel like God wants. This is the audible, powerful voice of heaven. And I can't see anything. And I just put my foot in my mouth. And it was Peter's fault. Get away from Peter. And he says, this is my son. It's emphatic. My chosen one. Listen to him. And at this point, they're on, Matthew says, on their faces, hiding their faces. They're not even looking up. Because what Peter had done, not only did he put in his foot in his mouth by speaking and saying, oh, this is great, this is the kingdom, he also tried to put Jesus and Elijah and Moses on equal ground. Hey, I'll build one for you. I'll build one for Elijah. I'll build one for Moses. You guys are all important guys. And it's as if the father shows up and says, no, no, no. And he takes the other ones away. And he says, this is my son. This is my chosen one. Hear him. Listen to him, right? And by the way, when John sees this almost same vision 60 years later, when he is writing, when he's on the island of Patmos, all the other disciples are gone. He's in his 90s. And he sees a vision of Christ again, right? So he gives him the the vision. So he writes about the book of Revelation. By the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations, just so you know. All right, but he, he shows up, the same exact thing happens, that he gets down on his face and he, and he, and he hides when he sees this glorified Christ, All right? This is, an, this is just an awesome scene, y'all. And we use that word a lot. We throw that word, it's awesome, right? Teenagers, that's all, I do it, I'm guilty. Some of you, oh, I'm going to green truck. How was the burger? Awesome. How was the ketchup? Lousy, <laughs> right? Good, that's right, so we all know that, all right? You go to a movie. How was the movie? Awesome. Awesome. Avengers, Spider-Man, whatever. Some love story. Awesome. Right? But they're really not awesome. Not in the true use of the word. When scripture uses the word awesome, it always exclusively uses it of the person or work of God. 
They didn't walk down the mountain. They're like, man, that was an awesome trip. It's always something God has done. No one walks out of the movie, I don't even care if it's Star Wars, and falls on their face hiding and saying, that was so awesome. If they do, send them to the counseling team because they got issues. Because there's only one that is awesome. And this is one of the themes of scripture, y'all. This is what Ethan kind of hinted at earlier. Is there only one that is awesome, that is God? And the theme of the scripture from really Genesis 1 to Revelation at the end is, is the might and awesomeness and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the theme of the scripture. And so it uses words like perfect and powerful and victorious and consuming fire, worthy, beautiful, immutable, sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, eternal, alpha and omega. All these terms to describe this one who's standing before these guys. And at the end, it says in Matthew's gospel, Luke's leaves it out, but in, Matthew, in Luke it just says, when the voice was spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. In Matthew's gospel, it gives a little bit more insight where they're hiding in the dirt and Jesus has to come up and touch them and say, it's okay, boys, don't be afraid. And then they get up. And that's the, this powerful God, but yet that's the intimate touch of our powerful God, right? That he has to come up and say, don't be afraid. And, and here's, the, here's the big picture for us. And you think that me and Ethan would have talked earlier, but we didn't. But, so he stole really my thunder. So in second service, he's not gonna say it because he's gonna steal my thunder. <laughs> the first and most important thing a church can do to stay alive and not die is be a place where the Lord Jesus Christ is worshiped and exalted and praised and honored and made much of. When a church moves to an, a personal focus, it's about me, it's about what I want, then, we, then it, they are dead men walking. Because it is not about us. Does that mean we don't have needs? No. Does that mean that we don't need encouragement? No, we do. Does that mean we don't need to be challenged? Absolutely we do. Does that not mean that we don't have to be cared for? We do. But isn't it interesting that the place where the disciples feel most satisfied is the place in which Jesus is being glorified? Right? So Peter is completely like, let's stay here forever. Where? In this place where God is being exalted, where God is being magnified. And if we are a place where God is exalted and magnified, I can promise you, your needs are going to be met. Your encouragement is going to be there. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be cared for because, because God is being glorified. And that's why it doesn't start with you. It starts with him and then it flows down. That's the focus of the church. That is the focus of eternity. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? And if we're gonna be a place in 30 years that, that people's lives are still being changed, that the Father is gonna look down and say, they are a place I'm gonna send my spirit. They are a place where I am going to bless and pour out my blessing. It's a place where his son will be glorified because the intent of the Father is to glorify the son. What does Jesus say before he goes back to heaven? Father, glorify my name like he was before the beginning of the world. He said, I will. I am. I'm doing it constantly. There's entire books of the Bible written on the supremacy and the magnificence of the Lord Jesus. The book of Hebrews is one of them. The whole book is about how Jesus is better than everything. And the first three verses in the book of Hebrews, it highlights five reasons why he's better. Let me just highlight them real quick because I think this is important for us as a church. It says this, long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. 
And then he gets, goes into this list of five things. Um, first thing, from whom he, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The first reason Jesus is better than everything, he's far superior that he is worthy of exaltation and worship, is because he owns the universe. He is the heir. Everything's his. He's like, well, I just bought a car. It's his. I just got a job. It's his. I just breathed. That was his. Everything, he is the heir to everything. Second thing he says, and of whom he appointed the heir of all things, I mean, excuse me, through whom he also, he created the world. Jesus created the universe, thus it's his. He is worthy because he created everything. That God the Father used the Son to create, and because he created, it is his. He created the universe. Next thing. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the revealer of God's glory. You want to see God the Father? Look at the Son. In fact, Philip asks him on the night before he's he's betrayed, he says, show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, Philip, that's a dumb question. That's my translation. But he says, how can you ask me that? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? He he is the, the glory and the revelation of who the Father is. This is who it is. Next thing, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus sustains the universe. Yesterday, I went on a kayak trip just with, with the fam. We're kind of going up, and I'm just, just a small little half-mile little strip, not even. And I'm looking at all these animals and this ecosystem and just crabs and, and birds and sharks and all these things. I'm thinking, this little strip right here is sustained by God. That's just one little quarter mile. All the neutrons and protons and quarks. Some of you chemistry nerds are getting excited. Leptons. I wrote it down. Fermions. I don't even know what that is. But God sustains it. <laughs> he sustains it right now. My, my second grader did a project on Uranus a few weeks ago, and so we're looking at facts about Uranus. And you know there's all these weird, just crazy storms going on right now on Uranus? And it, you know, that's like... I don't even know how, how I wrote it down. Where is it? It's so far away. It's like I can't even remember how far away it is. It's 1.5 billion miles away. Do you know who's sustaining those storms right now? The Lord Jesus. Everything on that planet and Pluto, which is still a planet in my mind. <laughs> Care what the scientists say. And then I, I read this week that they, we discovered like a year ago the furthest planet from, from Earth that we've seen so far. It's like 13,000 light years away. Guess who's sustaining that right now? Whatever's on it. Whatever type of gas is in the air, in the atmosphere, whatever type of, There's storms raging and there's maybe water, maybe not. There's wind, there's all these things. And Jesus right now is sustaining it. The Lord Jesus, the same one who was standing there with them, the one they saw the glory. I want you to see this because we're like, yeah, we kind of bring him down to our level. He is not on our level. He is holy and he is different. Yet this is what makes the last point even more amazing is that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high after he made purification. That he is the redeemer of all things. And, the, and the, the thing that should blow us away is this God who's sustaining some planet 13,000 light years away empties himself 
becomes a man and dies on a cross for your sins. This is what makes the incarnation remarkable. That this God who is so large and so powerful knows every thought in your mind and he still loves you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many tears you have cried. And he actually wants to have a close loving relationship with you. See, that's what makes the Christian faith just astounding. That's what makes this God so, so amazing, truly awesome that he wants to tabernacle, to dwell with you. And one day you will see him. You won't, you won't see a humble carpenter though. You will see a glorified king. And I can tell you in that day, you're probably not gonna be thinking, well, I don't like my job. It's too cold in the sanctuary. The drums are too loud. I promise you won't be thinking about you at all. You'll be thinking about him. And you'll be thanking him and worshiping him and loving him and enjoying the eternity he has created. So when we gather, the point is, it's not about you. But when you make it about him, it's amazing how you get the bread of life and the water of life for your soul when you make it about him, right? And, and so that's huge for us. And churches that die make it about us. They, 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 talk, they sprinkle a little Jesus in there just to make us feel good, but it's really about us. But what scripture is clear about from day one is that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. And all things means you, right? So as a church, let's not lose that. We gather to exalt the Savior in the name of the Father and the power of the Spirit, right? That's why we're here. And if we forget that, then we're dead men walking. Dead men walking. That's the first point, right? That's the first point. So now knowing that, knowing what, who Jesus is, let's go back to what he said up front, right? And he said, if anyone will come after him, let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. And we're gonna come to this in a couple weeks again, so we're not gonna deep dive on it because I wanted to focus on the last point. But here, here's what he's saying. If you're gonna follow me, then you gotta stop following who? You. You gotta deny yourself. You have to be willing to die to self. And this idea of take up your cross, we hear that and we've heard it all before. But remember, Jesus at this point had not yet died on the cross. And he had not yet told them that he was going to die on a cross. He told them he was going to die, but at this point he hadn't said how he was going to die. So when they hear cross, they hear most, most agony, most suffering, most embarrassing, most shameful thing. Why would he use that illustration? Right? Why would he say, you got to be willing to take up a cross? Why would we do that? Right? But the idea is this, and this is the big piece, is that if you're gonna follow him, you have to love him more than anything else, even your own life. And a church that is alive and a church that is moving and the Father is saying, this is one I'm gonna bless and this is one that my spirit is gonna move is a church where Christ is loved, that he is exalted and that he is loved. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm thinking about this this week and I'm thinking, do I really love God more than life? Would I die? Because, you know, y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I, I, I kind of, I'm fond of my life. I, yeah, I, 
love my, my wife. I love my, hanging with my kids. I love my CRV. Gets good gas mileage. <laughs> kind of like the dog sometimes. Right? I love going out to eat and I like watching my kids play sports and doing their things at school and, and watching funny shows and playing games and playing cards. I like running. I like a great steak. Right? I love sitting on the back porch on a day like yesterday. Who didn't love, like yesterday was like the most gorgeous day and just sitting on the back porch and enjoying it and seeing the birds. I'm kind of fond of that. Am I the only one? I mean, we don't live in Antarctica here, y'all. I mean, if you live in Antarctica, you're like, yeah, I think I'm gonna die. Yeah, that's it. Okay. I mean, this is kind of nice. And do I love Jesus more? Or do I love me more? Because really, the thing that gets in the way with a love for Jesus is it's not a love for sports. It's not a love, it's a love for me. And that's his point. And so he goes into, the, he kind of explains this a little bit for us. He says, whoever would save his life would lose it. Are right, you trying to save it? You're going to lose it. This is the, whole, the heart of our, of our title, Fall and Rising, right? You think those who are on the rise are actually on the fall. In the kingdom, everything is upside down. You want to go up, you need to go down. You want to be greatest, you need to be last. He says, you want to actually save it, then you got to be willing to lose it, right? That my life is more valuable, following me is more valuable than anything. And to ex- further explain that, he, he gives this, this other illustration. What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world, the whole world, and forfeits his, himself, his soul, literally? I mean, think about it. Let's say you become the richest person who has ever lived. You have more, I mean, you own everything. You are the owner of the world. You're the king of the Illuminati, and you know it exists, right? Right, you are the head of everything. You fly on your private jet from this country to this castle, and you're in the best hotels. You have the best food. You're the best of everything, and not only do you have everything, you have the greatest, you know, kind of lifestyle. You're healthy. You're 90, but you look 20. You live longer than that. You live to 140 years, and you have great quality of life all 140 years, and you have everything, the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect, everything is perfect and, you, and for longer than anybody else. And Jesus says, you, let's say that's true, and then you, then you die, 173 years. You live perfectly 173 years. It's a great life, and then you die, and then you forfeit your soul. In the end, you are separate from God. How long in eternity do you think it you'll, it'll take you to think, wow, that wasn't worth it? It'll be like 30 seconds? Like a minute? Five minutes? A day? He said, that's the point. Your soul is more valuable than the greatest life ever lived for a thousand years because it's an eternity. And what he's saying is, what you think you may lose following me, you will gain far more in following me, even if it feels like death. Even if it feels like death. Why? Because we see who he is. We see the picture of his glory and, and, his, and his joy and his, his, his everything, his magnificence. And so he says, your greatest affection needs to be for me. And look, we can be a church with great theology. Some of you are super sharp. Man, you know Wayne Grudem like a brother. And if you know who Wayne Grudem is, you're a nerd already, so that's another thing. But, I mean, you're like theological guy. We can be a strong theological church. We can have 100% of our people in community groups, 100% serving, missions, all crazy. There was another church in the New Testament that had all those things. It was called the Church of Ephesus. I mean, they had some rock star pastors, too. They had, they had Paul at one time. They had Peter. They had Timothy. But by 90 A.D., 
Jesus writes him a letter. It's found in Revelation 2. You can read it. And he compliments him. He says, you got great theology. And you don't like false teachers. And you work hard. You're all in the servant in the nursery. And you got all these things going for you. He says, but here's what I got against you. He says, you don't love me anymore. You lost your first love. And because you have, I'm about to take your lampstand away. I'm about to remove my blessing from your church. I'm about to take, I'm about to shut the doors. But we do great, we have great preaching. Great doctrinal statement, we're all serving. Yeah, but you're missing the point. And this is ironic because just 30 years earlier when Paul's writing them, he's complimenting them for their love. And now it just took one generation for them to be all busy and lose their love, right? And, and so he says, I'm gonna close the door. So we gotta, not only do we remember that Christ is exalted, we can remember that, that he is loved. And when he's exalted, he will be loved. And, and the biggest threat to our love for God is my love for me. I'll be honest, that's me. How about you? My, your comfort, your stuff, your passions, your self-exaltation, things that we just need to be reminded of. Last thing. So Christ is exalted. Christ is loved. That's in a live church. And one more thing. It's very simple, but it's, it flows right from the other ones. Is that Christ is obeyed. I mean, if he is who he says he is, if he is this great and exalted and mighty, doesn't it make sense that you're gonna listen to the God who is in control of the solar system that is a billion light years away? I think I'm gonna listen to that guy. And, and since he's proved his love for us so much by sending his own son to die for us, doesn't it make sense that we can trust that his, his heart is for our best? That he is a father who cares about you more than you care about yourself? It just makes sense. Right? And churches that are alive, not perfect. There is no perfect church. If you think, oh, man, we got it together, I promise you, come hang out with the staff for a week and you'll realize you're like, man, I can't believe how sinful these people are. Because we all are. So we're not talking about perfection, but there is a heart to do what Jesus says. And sometimes what Jesus says flies in the face of the culture, which is why he says here, he says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of his Father, and the glory of his holy angels. There's some things that, that we believe that Scripture teaches that are repulsive to the culture, that are offensive. I mean, the exclusivity of Jesus' claims, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. That is offensive. Do we soften that? Oh, well, he didn't really mean I am the... We can't be ashamed of that. And God has revealed in his word, there's no major issue in life that he has not spoken into. Now, he's not saying whether you should go to Georgia or Clemson, all right? The obvious answer is Georgia because it's a Hope Scholarship and it's because it's Georgia, all right? But I mean, yes, amen, Clayton Boykin. I heard that over there. (laughs) But he is spoken into every major, what area has he not spoken into? He's talked about modesty, purity, loving money, contentment, how to work for a hard boss, how to love your spouse, how to speak, how to, how to be a good steward of money, how to work, how to treat your parents, how to handle disappointment, how to handle hardship, anxiety, how to value children, contentment, conflict, people who have hurt you. It talked about marriage. It's talked about manhood. It's talking about womanhood. It's talking about a sexual ethic. Jesus has been clear. The question is, are we gonna listen to the Father or are we gonna listen to ourselves? Father says, here's my son, listen to him. Here's his words, listen to him. All right? 
Who are we going to listen to as a church? Are we going to be ashamed? Well, that was 1950. It's 2017. We're so much smarter now. Or are we going to say, no, Father, you are smarter. I'm going to trust you. A church that is alive does not compromise this. Period. End of story. It doesn't make this relevant to the culture. It sees how relevant it is already to the culture. That's, that's where we're at. And so let's just close with this. Let me, let me speak just specifically to the ladies in the house and I'll speak to the men and then we'll close and we'll worship. And I'll still be under 45 minutes. Hallelujah. Ladies, understand this, that if you study culture, just culture throughout the generations, that the last kind of bastion of holiness in a culture is always the women. I mean, when everyone, men are always dogs and slime balls, right? But when, when, when there's no one else is holding on to God, the ladies are holding on to God, All right? It's just, it's just the way it is. You look at, through Israel, you look at, through the, through the ages, the, when, and when women start to compromise, when, they, when immorality starts to come from them, a culture is toast. And you see it around the world. And, and the sad thing is this, we, start, we see it in America now. Where it used to be when we're doing, you know, counseling, people coming in for marriage, it used to be, you know, the man is always the guy who leaves, and the man is the one who leaves his family and his wife. We're seeing more ladies leave husbands than husbands leave ladies now, right? It's, it's, I need to be happy, I need to be this, and so, and and it's just the way of our culture. And so what we need is some women who are not going to be dictated by, you know, Grey's Anatomy and Cosmopolitan but they're going to listen to the Lord Jesus who says, this is, this is what I want for you. This is what it looks like. And when you do that, ladies, you become a, a shining light of reflecting the image of God and what it means to be woman and godly and holy. And you can have a huge, huge impact on your family and on the culture and on the church. It is a huge piece for you to just say, this, this is what Jesus says, I'm gonna do it. And men, when God comes to kind of, and you especially see this in the Old Testament, you see in the New, when God comes to kind of judge and he kind of look over a nation, he always does a search. And he searches for a man. Ezekiel says, a watchman on the wall. He says, someone who will stand in the gap. And if he finds one guy, he will turn away. So if I can just find one guy who will stand in the gap for his people. And what we need is some, some college dudes who are gonna stand in the gap and be different down at Armstrong slash Georgia Southern slash whatever it's gonna be called now over at SCAD. We need, you need some, some fathers and some husbands that are gonna say, you know what? As for me and my house, we're, we're gonna serve the Lord. That's, that's standing in the gap that are going to say, I know what everyone else says, but what does my, my Savior say? See, that, that's, a, that's a church. It doesn't matter size, it doesn't matter numbers. That is a church, that is a group of people where God is going to look down and say, here's a person, here's a 23-year-old, single gal, working two jobs, but she wants to exalt me, she loves me, and she listens to me. I can, I can do something with that. I, I can work with that. This guy over here thinks he knows it all. This guy thinks he does I, you know, He went to seminary, whatever. I can't work with that. I can work with this. And that's what we just want to be. That's a living church, y'all. That is a church where the spirit is moving. That is a church where God is blessing. That, what kind of impact after 20 or 10 years in now? 
20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, when I'm way gone and the Phillies and the Braves still haven't won the World Series, <laughs> what kind of impact could just one group of people have? Huge. In a place where Christ is exalted, in a place where Christ is loved, when a place where Christ is obeyed. Right? That's it. So let's, you know, as we worship, and Ethan, you guys can bring your team up. As we worship, just, you know, ask yourself a couple questions. Are there areas that I am not obeying? Are there areas that I'm loving myself? Right? This is a time for you to re- respond. The reason, y'all, we do songs after the word, some of you are like, well, usually we've been to church, we just do one song, we do the offering, and we go. This is a time for you to just kind of meet with God and, and just respond. And singing is a great response to love. I mean, there was 30, 40,000 people yesterday up in Sanford Stadium for a practice game, screaming at the top of their lungs, right? And there ain't nothing wrong with that. There was like 13 people at the Phillies Braves game last night because no one cares. And they were screaming their hearts out. Why? Because that's what they love. That's great. When you love, you will respond vocally. So singing is just a great opportunity to do that. So why don't you stand, we will pray, and uh, we'll sing a couple songs. Father, I just pray that your son, regardless of of how he came in, would be now exalted for who he is and his great might and his great power. I pray that this will be a church as imperfect as it is, and it is imperfect, but you'll be a place where people can hear from you, that they can exalt you, that they can love you, and that they can find out what you have said so that we can follow you. Um, And so I just pray that would be true of us, each one of us, in Jesus' name, amen.